0: Please. We need to see Jesus. There's no room up there. He's paralyzed from the waist down. He can't stand. No, there there, there is definitely no room then. Simon, he deserves to hear Jesus as much as anyone else. Hello again. I'm so glad I found you. My friend, you're here. Why do you need to get closer? I saw what your master did to the leper. I know what I saw. We're trying to keep that under wraps for now. Look at this crowd. Imagine what we'd be Please. against. Please. Please, help me get my friend to him. Who's that company? I'll talk to them. I'll talk to them. Come with me. What's going on here? This is a peaceful gathering. That is what the Maccabees said. They're blocking the road. I'll move them. They just they, they haven't been told where to stand yet. Finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she does not wear me out. There's too many people. But you know him. Can't you get us any closer? I don't want to interrupt the teacher by causing a scene. What if you were me? Wouldn't you want your friends to make a scene? Good morning, Hope Ames. Uh, Once again, it's just so good to be with you. We say it all the time, and I'm just going to say it one more time. We don't believe it's any accident that you're here. We've been praying for you, and so it's so wonderful to be worshipping with you uh, on the beginning of a very, very hot week ahead. So let's just all go ahead and just do this, right? Let's just get ready. There we go. We're in the second week of our series called When Life Gets Tough, and we're opening with that clip today, one, because it's the passage that we're looking into today in Luke chapter five, but also because it asks a very important question. What if you were that guy? Wouldn't you want a friend who would make a scene for you? Do you have any friends who would make a scene for you? Like when you really, really need it. Second week of our series, When Life Gets Tough. When life gets tough, we need friends, don't we? Sometimes when life gets tough, we need friends who would be obnoxiously friendly to us, obnoxiously making a scene, just so that we know that we have a companion, that we have support, that there still is hope. I mean, really, friends do that for us. I have friends in my life that have been relentlessly friendly for me, have made a scene for me. Uh, I tell you this all the time. I I love to run, and one of the ways that people have loved me is is through the way that they've supported me, in running. And Church, you've actually been a part of that. If you were part of Hope Ames, uh, right when we started our first year, I was training for the Boston Marathon. And one of the coolest things that happened was a group of uh, leaders from Hope Ames, they got together and they bought me these running shoes to wear in the Boston Marathon. they were actually Boston-themed running shoes. And I was like, this is incredible. So as I was suffering and hurting and in pain and really kind of hating my life, I just had to look down and remember my friends. So you were there for me, and I, and I appreciate that. When I got back from the Boston Marathon, I came into my office and I saw all these signs covering the walls. My favorite one was, you qualified for Boston, we qualified for Netflix. That was signed by our Power Life students. I thought that was really sweet. (laughs) A bunch of you sent me videos, and like, really, it actually helped. You were making a scene for me. A year later, I was running the Fargo Marathon. It was pouring rain. It was really bad. Uh, My wife, who was then my fiancé, Abby, and my friend, Brock, they came out and wore these obnoxious shirts, run, Danny, run, to support me standing out in the rain. It's just so good to have friends who will make a scene for you. These are two people that I know that I can rely on, that I could call at any hour of the day. One, because hopefully she will respond to me because she's my spouse, but also... My friend Brock, like, he shows up for me. He's there for me. I could text him any of the hour of the day, and he'd probably respond within five minutes. Some of you know Brock because he's been attending Hope Ames for a while. Uh, he did move to Des Moines, so now he's attending Hope Elam. I'm not saying he's a traitor, but he didn't think we were good enough for him. So I'm specifically saying that because there's a 99% chance he will be listening to this podcast later. So when friends are in need, when life is getting tough, We need our friends to be a helper. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17, it says that a friend is loyal. A friend loves in all times. And when life is tough, the way that a friend loves and a way that a friend is loyal is, is a friend becomes a helper. As a pastor, I cannot go two days without someone asking me, I have someone in need and I just need some help on how to help. How can I help? Have you ever asked that question, how can I help? I've got someone who's going through a really tough circumstance right now. How can I help? As you all know, there are people in our community who are really hurting right now, going through a very difficult season, a very, very tough time. Over at Cornerstone Church last week, you know that there was a shooting. Uh, In our pastor's group chat that we have in the city of Ames, there's an email chain going on, and Pastor Mark from Cornerstone, he said, here's how you can help. You know, let us know that you love us, show kind gestures, and pray for us. So you, Lutheran Church of Hope, you sent them a whole bunch of cookies from insomnia, which was, I think, really appreciated in a card. We're just there. We're loyal. This is what we need to do as the body of Christ that reaches out and helps one another because a friend is loyal in all circumstances. When life gets tough, we need to be friends and we need to help. But sometimes when we're helping, we're worried, am I helping enough? Am I doing enough? Now, that's the most of us. I will acknowledge, though, sometimes it's hard to get out of our seat and actually provide the help. Some of us need a little bit of encouragement. For those of you today, in the book of Galatians, it reminds us this uh, glaring uh, statement. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. The law of Christ, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. The way that we love God is by loving God's children, the people around us. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Would you please repeat after me? I am, not that I am not that important. Now, here's the good news. God thinks you're super important. In the book of Psalms, it says you are wonderfully, fearfully made. It says that God looks at you as if you're a newborn child, just obsessing over you. Like, you're very, very important. But you're not too important to help those around you. You're not too important to be a friend. A friend who might make a scene when life gets tough. There is a loneliness epidemic in, the, in our country right now, specifically. There is a friendship e- epidemic, if you will. Here's some statistics that I found from Harvard University this week. These are, these are, these are, this is not an exhaustive list, these are just a few of the highlights. Forty-nine percent of U.S. adults have fewer than three friends. Fewer than three friends. And some of you are like, wow, I'm doing pretty good. And some of you are like, three friends, I would do anything. I saw a meme online recently that said, nobody talks about the miracle where Jesus had 12 close friends in his 30s. (laughs) It's hard. It's really hard. What's alarming about that is it's 49% of people in 2021 said that they have fewer than three friends. But in 1990, it was only 25% of people said they had fewer than three friends. We're getting worse at this. 25% of people say they have no friends. That has quadrupled in the last 30 years. I thought this was interesting. 51% of mothers feel isolated. I'm not a mom, but I see moms. And I see some of the things that maybe you're going through. And and I just want you to know, I'm sorry if you've ever felt unsupported. Uh, If there is a mom in your life, especially your own mom, reach out to her. Let her know you love her. 61% of young adults say no one has reached out to them in the last week. Just to let them know that they're there for them. This is glaring for us. This is painful for us. It's so important to reach out to people, to remind them that we're their friends. It doesn't have to be a perfect response. In fact, I'll tell you this, just your simple relationship with a person is always going to be greater than your response. I wonder if the reason why it keeps us from making friends with people or supporting or helping is because we think, well, what if I don't do the right thing? What if I don't have the right response? Know this. Your relationship with a person is going to be greater than your response with the person. One thing that I know from the grief that I've dealt with in my life is that I hardly ever remember what someone said to me in the moments of grief, but I do remember that they showed up. I remember their compassion and I remember their consistency. I remember almost nothing that someone has said to me, but I remember who's been there. I remember their compassion and I remember their consistency. It is so important that we are compassionate and consistent with people. Over half the people in this country are dealing with either anxiety or depression. Some of that is diagnosed, some of that is undiagnosed. Again, talking about young adults, and there are a lot of young adults in our community here in Ames, 75% of them are dealing with some sort of anxious or depressive symptom. We've got to be there for one another. We've got to reach out to each other. People who are over 60, 30% of people who are over 60 are living by themselves these days, and of those people, 75% say that that they feel extremely lonely. What are we doing? This is something we could solve today. We could reach out to one another. We could be that loyal friend who shows up in all circumstances. The Bible has a lot to say about showing up for our friends, and it tells us how we can do it doesn't tell us the script of exactly how to respond, but it shows how we can be a good friend, how we can reinforce to that person, we have a relationship. I have compassion for you, and I'm going to show it through my consistency. One of the most famous examples of this shows up in the book of Job. There's a guy named Job, and he had a terrible day. Now, if you're wondering, Job, I've seen the book Job in the Bible. It's Job, Job, J-O-B. It's actually Job. So this is what we read in Job chapter two. Job has some friends who show up after a really, really bad day. Job, in one day, has lost his business, his friends, his family, and his health. Along come three friends. Imagine that this is the scene over here. Three friends who show up with Job, and they just sit with him. It says, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Job's three friends are doing exactly what they need in this moment. They're simply providing relationship for him. There's no words that can express the kind of grievances that Job is dealing with. I think that is so neat that we remember who showed up, but not necessarily what they said. Do you know what I think that tells us? I think that it means that our hearts and souls have a way of communicating with one another in a way that our words cannot. I think it just proves the fact you do have a soul. You do have a creator. You were meant for real community that goes deeper than lip service. Our hearts and souls have an ability to talk to one another in a way that our mouths cannot. Suffering was too great for words, and so the friends showed up. Now, when people are hurting and people are suffering, don't be surprised when they say things that sound like they're hurting and sound like they're suffering. When someone's hurting, they're desperate. I've been hurt before, and I feel desperate, and I don't know what to say. And so sometimes when I say something, it sounds desperate. Job said this in Job chapter 3, he said, I wish I had never been born. Specifically, he said, I wish that the day of my birth would be erased, wiped off the history of this earth. I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, only trouble comes. Now, especially in Christian circles, when we hear people talking like that, instead of just being able to sit here, who here tenses up and like, like, ah, that's blasphemy. I don't know if that's the word that comes to your mind, but you're like, I gotta fix that! You feel like you have to fix it so quickly. And so one of Job's friends, he has that knee-jerk reaction, and he tries to fix it. I don't think that his intentions were bad, but this is what Eliphaz says. And poor Eliphaz, he's probably a really nice guy, but in the book of Job, he's kind of a bad guy. So he says, a wise man, a wise man, he says this to Job after seeing his suffering, a wise man wouldn't answer with such empty talk. You are nothing but a (laughs) windbag. Ow. (laughs) Your sins are telling your mouth what to say. Is God's comfort too little for you? If you listen, I will show you. I will answer you from my own experience. Is that helping? Now, the interesting thing about it, thank you, amen, church. The interesting thing about it is that oftentimes, like, you could read this and be like, well, I don't speak like that. I don't say windbag, you know. But we actually have responses like this and they don't help. Job recognizes it right away. He says, I've heard all this before. What miserable comforters you are. Man. I have a question. When you show up in people's lives, are you helping or are you hurting? I know that the intention is always to help. But I think that it's important just to name a few things in this safe space to talk about some of the things that are actually hurting. Here are the things that Eliphaz and Job's other friends did for him, and they weren't helpful. They were hurting. The first is he he invalidated Job. Your feelings aren't real. What are you talking about? What a foolish thing to say. He makes assumptions. He says, well, your sins are the reason for this. You know what assumptions do, right? Make astronomical errors for you and me. (laughs) That's the saying, right? (laughs) Right? Uh, you thought I was going to lose my job. No. <laughs> They're condescending, feeling like they know what happened, talking down on him, and they teach. Well, you know, Job, I've been through fill-in-the-blank. Whew. Anybody else here know that when you've just poured out your, your soul to someone, and they respond with, well, let me tell you a story about me. Like, I know the intention is to relate, but it's just not super helpful in the moment. Those are the things that hurt, but instead, let's point, our let's, let's, let's instead turn our attention to what, what, what might help. Instead of invalidating someone, we can assure them. You don't have to invalidate someone's feelings to assure them of the truth. Both can exist. People's feelings are real. People's feelings are true. Even if their feelings are maybe misguided, their feelings are still their feelings, and therefore, their feelings are true experiences. Have you ever had a situation like this? Maybe you know someone, maybe you are someone who deals with anxiety. And you can't resist. You pick up the phone call and you call a loved one and you say, I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm dying. And this is the 50th time you've received this call or made this call. And the knee-jerk reaction is to say, You're being ridiculous. You're not going to die. Get over it. You know what you can say? Your feelings are real. I know that you feel like you're dying right now. I want to assure you of the truth. I'm here for you. I'm going to walk through this with you. We've been through this before, and we're going to go through it again. You don't have to invalidate someone to assure them of the truth. Instead of assuming, we could instead just be curious. We could ask questions. Judgmental people are not curious, but curious people resist judgment. Resist judgment in these situations when people are crying out. Ask questions. Instead of being condescending, we can uplift someone. Remind them of who they are and whose they are. They're not a nuisance. They're not a burden. They're not a failure because they're having doubts. They're a human being. And if they've come to you, they've come to you because they believe you're a safe person. Uplift them. Remind them who they are and whose they are. They belong to God. And instead of teaching, we can listen. The book of James chapter one tells us, be slow to speak, be slow to get angry. Anybody else here had an experience where someone came to them with their feelings, and they were very real, and now you get mad? How could you do that? But what it really is is, how could I let you get to that place? Be slow to speak. Be slow to get angry. Instead, the scripture tells us, be quick to listen. Let us be quick to listen. I know the intention is always good. Almost always good. We're just trying to help. We're just trying to fix. We're just trying to find quick solutions. But here's a really refreshing thing to say every single day. You ready for it? I am not the Messiah. Would you say that with me? I am not the Messiah. Isn't that great? I don't have to save anyone. (laughs) Deal with your own problems. Kidding. That's not the point of the sermon. We join each other in our problems. But maybe you're feeling this stress. I can't save someone from their anxiety. I can't save somebody from their depression. Now on a practical level, most people in this room are not called to be a psychiatrist, a therapist, a psychologist. You're probably not called to that. Some of you are. Praise God for that and do your work diligently in honor and to glorify the Lord. But for most of us, we're not actually called to that practically. But then in an even more important way, existentially, none of us are called to save somebody. We're called to be there for someone. I first heard this phrase from my friend, Michael Hurst. This is Michael. Uh, uh, I call him Uncle Mike, um, and he calls me nephew. This was at my ordination, um, and, uh, and he, told me, uh, he told me that phrase, and he said, Nephew! He always says it just like that. Nephew! Every single day, wake up and tell yourself, I am not the Messiah. And I want to show you exactly how he says it. I am not the Messiah. <laughs> so uh, I wake up every morning and my wife says, who are you talking to? You're crazy. You know. <laughs> but he always follows it up with this. I am not the Messiah, but I know him. I'm not the Messiah, but I know him. I will not be able to be the one who saves you But I know the one who does. Christian, you are not called to save anybody. The pressure is not on you, but instead the call to enjoy a loving friendship and relationship with your fellow brother and sister in Christ, with the other children of God, with the people of this world. That's your calling. That's what we're supposed to do. We see an incredible example of this in Luke chapter 5. You heard about this in the reading today. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. You uh, saw those friends depicted in the opening clip. It says they tried to take their friend, the paralyzed man, inside to see Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. This is where we saw the scene at the beginning of the sermon where they're saying, wouldn't you like to have a friend who would make a scene when life gets tough? So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Now let's bring out some context to the story. Why was it so crowded? It was so crowded because Jesus was starting to make a scene. Jesus was starting to become famous. His teachings were going, were going viral, as the kids would say it these days. His healings, his miracles, they were getting around. So it says that when Jesus was teaching on the next slide, he was teaching and some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. Don't just skip over that. Everybody was curious about Jesus. Everybody was curious about the one who could really help. Everybody was curious about this Messiah. Everybody was curious about this Deliverer. Aren't you? I mean, seriously, whether we believe or not, we want it. We want someone to deliver us because when we find ourselves in these tough situations, we realize I can't save myself and another person can't save me either. We can join each other in the places. We can get down into the holes with one another. I don't know how to get up any better than anybody else does. So all these people are showing up. Now the Pharisees weren't necessarily happy. The Pharisees were this religious sect of Judaism. And they didn't like Jesus' teaching about inclusivity and grace. About welcoming all people into the kingdom of God. They weren't big fans of that. And so they came to judge Jesus. They came to scope him out. They came to find out, on what authority do you teach? So as they're all surrounding in their holy huddle, trying to keep people away from this new teacher... This apparent savior, here come four friends with their other friend who is paralyzed. These friends make a scene. They are relentless. They will not stop. It says, so they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Maybe you heard this story in Sunday school and you're like, oh, of course, yeah, they just started. Do you know how crazy that is? They start ripping the ceiling off of a guy's house. Now, most scholars will say that at this time, this was the home that Jesus was staying. This was his home. And as Jesus is teaching, people are peeling the roof off. And I wonder if he's like, I mean, it's not like it was in this instant. He must have had to have stopped his teaching like, huh. Well, a good thing I know a repair guy. (laughs) I mean, he was a carpenter, right? His friends were relentless. They wouldn't stop. They wanted their friend to meet the Messiah. They knew they couldn't save him. But they knew the one who could. Are you making a scene for your friends? Are you relentlessly walking with them toward Jesus? There's a volunteer at our Hope West Moyne campus. His name is Jackson Jayla. Specifically, he is Pastor Jackson Jayla. He's an ordained Lutheran pastor, and he is from Liberia, and he volunteers as an usher uh, as he's now living in Iowa. And uh, he has a connection with Agape Orphanage in Liberia. Liberia is a country with enormous wealth gaps, but over 50% of the country is living in poverty, and this is probably no more apparent than in the orphanages where the children are suffering. Pastor Jackson, as he's been volunteering at Hope in West Des Moines, he's been hearing about these local sites and these other campuses that Lutheran Church of Hope has. Hope Ames started as a local site where we just simply gathered around a screen, a few of us, we watched the entire service online, and eventually it grew into about 100 people and we're like, hey, we should probably put a campus here. Thank you, got a job for that, appreciate you very much. <laughs> Pastor Jackson thought, well, why, why don't we do that in Liberia, the orphanage where he used to spend his time? So Pastor Jackson made a scene about it. He kept telling his friends about it. And at this very moment, because they watched the 9.30 service, at this very moment, I believe it is past 3 o'clock there in the afternoon, they're watching our West Des Moines service live. There are over 200 of them gathering around a tablet just to hear the Word of God. Packing out this house. You see the in- inside of the house on the bottom. You see the overflow out top. Right here, you see a message from their pastor. It says, Hello, Pastor Mike Householder. That's my dad, our senior pastor, and Hope family in the USA. Thank you for recognizing the Agape Orphanage and community in Liberia. We are are a pending Lutheran Church of Hope uh, site. How cool is that? It says, We can't wait. We love you too. And Liberia loves you. This is the cool thing about the way that we're living in this world right now. There's no excuse. We can reach out and be friends with anybody. Now, you might be saying, that's a little bit cruel to make them continue to watch on a tablet. Well, good news. We're already sending them screens and speakers so that they can actually become a real site, an actual campus of Lutheran Church of Hope. And I tell you what, it's crazy. They're already almost as big as Hope Ames. That's nuts! Isn't it? It's crazy. Know this. When you gather here on a Sunday morning, it is so cool to see your brothers and sisters in Christ gathering here. But you are a part of something that is so much bigger than you. And I'm not just talking about Lutheran Church of Hope. I'm talking about the movement of the body of Christ. Not when we have to come up with the perfect responses. You will never hear a perfect sermon from this stage. You'll never hear a perfect sermon from our West Des Moines campus. You'll never hear a perfect sermon from any of our campuses or any of our sites. What you will see is a group of people who humbly gather together to point people to the Messiah. We know we're not him, but we do know him. Let's point to him. Let's be friends. Let's make scenes about it. Let's be relentless in our compassion and our consistency. This is what we can do. I mean, it is insane. There's so many of us here in the United States where if it rains, like, I don't know if I'm going to church today. They're watching on a tablet! (laughs) Sorry, that was passive-aggressive. Let's get back to our story in Luke chapter (laughs) 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven when they lowered him. They lowered him on his mat. Here's the second scene of the day. This is my yoga mat. You want to see the downward dog? I'm just kidding. They lowered their friend down on this mat. Now in the scene that you're going to see in just a few minutes here, you see that there's some dialogue, but I find it very interesting that in the texts, in the scriptures, it doesn't actually record the friend of this paralyzed man saying anything. I mean, what are they supposed to say? What are they even supposed to ask for? The man who gets down to the floor, he didn't ask for anything. He just doesn't say, it doesn't say that he said anything. And yet, it's as if Jesus has a way of understanding our hearts and souls as if he was hearing the words come from her mouths, hearts and souls, man they, they can communicate with one another in a way that mouths can't. Jesus he sees in your heart and soul as if it's the language that you're speaking. He says this man, "Young man, your sins are forgiven, I wonder if his friend's are like, <laughs> thanks, do you see the real problem here you know the thing about going to Jesus to to fix our biggest problems. The thing about walking with our friends to Jesus is, is we might be surprised what our hearts and souls are actually crying out for. Now, fast forward to the end of the story. Jesus is going to heal this man know that Jesus cares about this physical world. We cannot just say, oh, it's only the spiritual side of stuff that matters in this world. No, God cares about this world because he created this world. So he showed up in this world and he's redeeming this world. That is the spiritual and that is the physical, that is the emotional, that is everything that is in it. We cannot be Christians who are so shallow to say, oh, well, it's just spiritual. You just need to get spiritually happier and deeper and then you won't be so bothered by your physical circumstances. No, Jesus is going to take care of that. But first things first, I'm going to bring you into right relationship with me. Greater than anything you will ever hear is the relationship that you experience with me. And there is this tension rising in the room because the Pharisees know exactly what Jesus has just said. The Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And here's the crazy thing. It says Jesus knew what they were thinking. He understands our hearts and our souls. The man on the ground did not ask for anything. Maybe you're sitting there, I don't know, what if I haven't come to God and said the right things? So be it. The point is that you came to God. The point is that you directed it to God. Job, who is saying all of these crazy things, at the end of Job it says, shame on you, Eliphaz, I'm angry at you because you did not stay faithful in the way that Job did. Yes, Job, the doubter. Yes, Job, the one who is saying crazy things, saying things that hurting people say when they're desperate. Do you know how much faith it takes to cry out to God when you're doubting God? Don't ever think that Jesus doesn't understand the words of your heart and your soul. When you come to him broken, feeling excluded, and pushed out by the rest of society, maybe you're alone, you don't have those friends. Jesus hears the cries of your heart and your soul that your words cannot articulate. He knew it for this man. He knew it of the Pharisees in the room. He knows it for you and for me. He knows what the Pharisees are thinking. So he says to them, so tell me, what's easier? Is it easier to tell this man your sins are forgiven or go ahead, get up and walk? Oh, the tension is building in the room. The tension's building in the room because if Jesus tells this man to get up and walk, and he does, that also means that when he said your sins are forgiven, he could do it. Only God can do that. Jesus knows if he does what he just said he's going to do. He is signing the warrant for his execution. The Pharisees will not let him away with this. The tension builds in the room. Take a look. Jesus of Nazareth. I saw what you did to the leper on the road this morning. My friend has been paralyzed since childhood. He has no hope but you. Please, do for him what you did for the leper. That's a rope! Put it back, man! If you are willing, Rabbi, I know you can do this. If you are willing, Rabbi, you know you can. Hey, I'm talking to you. By whom do you teach? Certainly not the authority of any rabbi from Nazareth. Where did you study? Your faith is beautiful. Son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? But I ask you, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. It's easy to say anything, no? But to show you, and so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, my son, eyes, pick up your bed, and go home. I think that that scene is shot so wonderfully um, by the creators of the Chosen film series Uh, And we have a a group that is meeting on Monday nights in The Link uh, to watch every episode of The Chosen Series. It's never too late to partake in that. And on a day where we're talking about friendship and being there for one another, I think that's a really easy and great way to plug in with some people. But what a scene. Do you feel the tension rising in the room? Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. The text follows that by saying, immediately, as everyone watched, I mean, really, Luke is inviting the audience of, uh, of, this, of, this, of, this, of his book to go ahead, ask anyone who is there. As everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. It must have been a chaotic, crazy scene. Joy, praise, clapping, shouts of, I don't know, the happiest things that you've ever heard. But in that crazy and chaotic scene, I wonder what's going through Jesus' heart. For a moment did he pause, understanding what had just happened to him, knowing what he just revealed about himself, and knowing what would come his way. It tells this man to rise, get up. The word for rise there, it's a Gary. If you've been around Hope Ames before, you've heard me reference that. Literally means to wake up, and it's the same word that's used for Jesus who rises from the dead. Wake up. Experience life in the way that I created you to experience it. Rise, and as the scene's going crazy and wild, I wonder what's going through Jesus' mind. As he sees this man walk away, he knows what's coming his way. For this man to stand, Jesus would have to fall. For this man's legs to walk, his legs would be nailed to a cross. For this man to to dance, Jesus would die. But for this man to live, Jesus would also rise. As Jesus is there just in this chaotic scene, I wonder what's going through his head. I mean, do not feel compassion for your Savior. No wonder the book of Isaiah describes him as the man of sorrows. Think about all just the emotional and spiritual weight that he carries with us in his mind and us in his heart, speaking with our hearts and souls, knowing exactly what we're experiencing and thinking in every moment. As if our words were saying them. Who would be a friend to Jesus? How can you be a friend of the Messiah, the one who's doing the saving? In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus called for his friends. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is just before Jesus would be arrested, betrayed, and put on trial for his death. Stay here, please. They go into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is our third and final scene of the morning. All he does is ask his disciples just to sit here with me. It's the same thing that we're learning throughout the Bible all the way up to this point. To be a friend doesn't mean to have all the right responses. It just means to simply pursue that right relationship, to have compassion and consistency for the people around you, to show up, to make a scene for them. Jesus is saying, just sit with me. No words need to be said. Just sit with me. Pray with me. Keep watch with me. Three different times. Jesus goes back to his disciples and they have fallen asleep. They couldn't keep their eyes open. This part of the story just hits me every single time. Jesus hasn't asked me to physically join him in that garden and pray with him, but I think about how many times in my life when someone came to me, and I, like, I couldn't do it, I couldn't keep my eyes open. They needed me to be a friend, and I just felt like I was failing them. Do you know what that's like? How can I help you? I don't know. I don't know what to do. This is beyond my words. I can't express it. I don't have the things to say. I don't have anything to teach you. ah, I can't even keep my eyes open. How can I help? And how's Jesus going to respond to them? How's he going to respond to us? I mean, if there's something that I've learned about growing up, something they don't teach you about the disappointments in life is when you're just really disappointed in yourself. I let my friend down. I let my family down. I let my spouse down. I let my people down. Couldn't keep my eyes open. How is Jesus going to respond to us now? Don't you remember? You can't let him down. He holds you up with his righteous hand. He comes back to them. He says, Go ahead and sleep. Sleep. You can rest. But I'm going to go save you now. Oh. The only thing Jesus wants in our friendship with him is simply to sit and to be with him. You don't have to do any work. This is why the gospel is presented to us with grace, through the love of Christ poured out for us on the cross. You don't have to do anything to make him love you. You don't even have to keep your eyes open. You go ahead and sleep, because I'm going to go save the world. But don't you remember that the scriptures say, I will not leave you, I will come back for you. So hopping back into the book of Luke, when it ends and the women have showed up to the tomb, the angels say to them, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen. He's woken up. You fell asleep. But he will continue to rise. So we will rise with him. You don't have to do anything. Just simply sit and rest in the presence of Jesus with your friends. Be compassionate. Be consistent. There's no need for condescension, for assumptions, for teaching. There's no need for any of that. We can sit and we can listen and we can be curious and we can ask questions and we can love them. We don't pretend to be the Messiah, but we point them to the Messiah. The one who saves us even while we're sleeping. Where are you today in these scenes? Are you the one sitting in the chair, your life is falling apart? Are you the one on the mat, you don't even know how to express what you're feeling? Are you in the garden feeling disappointed that you couldn't keep your eyes open? Jesus is rising for every single one of us. All of us. During this last song, I invite you to stand on up, but I also invite you to really soak in the presence of the Holy Spirit, but also the presence of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are around you you simply do not know what someone in this room is going through. What you can do in this moment is you can pray for them. You can sit in this room with them. And if you're someone who is hurting, if you're sitting in that chair and you just need people to gather around you, know that in this moment right now, these are your friends. This is your family. We love you. We're not going to teach you. We're not going to give you our experience. We're just going to be consistent and compassionate with you. We know we can't save you. We've tried that before, but we couldn't keep our eyes open. But we will consistently point you to the one who can. That's our Jesus. Church, I invite you to stand on up. Soak in the presence of God. Be aware of the presence of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's be friends. Amen.